1: Welcome to the New Books
0: Network. Everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Lisa Sarensen about her new book, Getting Under Our Skin, The Cultural and Social History of Vermin how vermin went from being part of everyone's life to a mark of disease, filth, and lower stages. For most of our time on this planet, vermin were considered humanity's common inheritance. Fleas, lice, bedbugs, and rats were universals, scourges, as pervasive as hunger or cold, at home in both palaces and hovels. In Getting Our, Our Skin, Lisa Saracen tells a fascinating story of how vermin came to signify the individuals and classes that society impugns and ostracizes from 18th century london merchants anointing their carved bedsteads with roast roast cat to repel bedbugs to modern day hedge fund managers hoping neighbors won't notice exterminators in their penthouses the studies of this book reveal that vermin continue to fuel our prejudices and threaten our stages. Getting our under our skin will appeal to cultural historians, naturalists, and to anyone who has ever scratched and then gazed in horror. Well, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's really glad. Uh, it's really good to have you here today with us. So, as we have uh, gone through some unprecedented, unprecedented times during the global pandemic. I was wondering if you could reflect on how has it affected you and your work, and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience?
1: Well, I think that probably the, the main takeaway for me is that I never really expected to live through a kind of plague or a pandemic, the kind that I was writing about in the book. Uh, I know quite a lot about bubonic plague, and I know a good deal about typhus and uh, how people suffered from that. And I just never thought that I would uh, be in a similar situation. Although, of course, the uh, coronavirus is not as terrible as the other diseases were. But uh, it was kind of eye-opening as the pandemic was just beginning as I was writing the last uh, part of my book. And uh, the idea that an apocalyptic event was going on uh, really uh, was quite amazing to me. And the response of people was also quite amazing. Uh, It was not um, terribly different from the kind of fear and terror inspired by plagues in the past. So um, at the beginning of the book, I added a paragraph about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, death rides a pale horse, and here we are again with this going on strange it, oh this it, is
0: fascinating yes. how you how you sort of had a specific point of view as well from the point of view of historian you you must have tried to contrast and compare or uh, this uh, situation to what you know from the history as you said the bubonic plague
1: Yes, uh, I think it's very interesting how people find scapegoats to blame for these diseases. So in the 14th century, people blamed the Jews, of course. In the 20th century, uh, Jews were also blamed for typhus because Lice was supposed to breed in uh, in their beards and, and uh, earlocks, and so you know it's similar. Uh, the not so much for disease, but just the prevalence of these kinds of vermin were blamed uh, also uh, on foreigners. Uh, the English blamed a lot of people but uh, they blamed the Irish and the Scots, particularly for the prevalence of, of lice. And uh, then as uh, Europeans colonized the rest of the world, they also blamed Native Americans. They blamed Africans. Uh, anybody who could be scapegoated uh, for disease and for the prevalence of vermin, uh, were used as objects uh, of derision, disgust. That even uh, resulted in uh, extermination or at least persecution for a lot of people. So uh, uh, when the coronavirus and COVID began, the way uh, the Chinese were blamed and are still blamed for the origin of the disease is quite similar nowadays to what happened in the past.
0: So can you tell us more about yourself and how did you get interested in the history?
1: Well, I am a historian of culture and ideas. Uh, And uh, by training, I'm an early modern European historian, so that's mostly 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. My last book was uh, on somebody named Margaret Cavendish, who was the Duchess of Newcastle in the middle and later part of the 17th century, uh, she was the first woman to write extensively about scientific subjects in English. Uh, she uh, was, she did not like the Royal Society of London and the new experimentalism that they were practicing. Uh, she didn't believe it could really uh, bring forth an accurate picture of nature. So she wrote scientific treatises where she condemned the Royal Society and experimentalism, and particularly she uh, responded to Robert Hooke's Micrographia, which was the first um, book produced by the Royal Society. It's full of graphic images, and the most famous are huge folios of a flea and a louse gigantic pictures one of them is uh, the uh, on the front jacket of my book uh, so I wondered as I was writing about this why the Royal Society focused on these particular creatures to begin with uh, Margaret Cavendish, took these creatures, particularly lice, and in a parody of the Royal Society called the New Blazing World, she converted lice into lice men who are her um, chemists and experimental philosophers. And so she both attacked them in treatises and in parody. I wanted to know what role these creatures played in the uh, imagination and also in the just in the general thinking of people in the 17th century earlier and later and that brought me to this book I wanted to know why they were looking at these particular insects. (laughs) It may be because they were very accessible, but I thought there were other reasons as well. So that brought me to the book, and uh, everything else resulted from that,
0: from that question. along your career uh, journey, what roles did your mentors and peers play? (laughs) Um <laughs> maybe you have uh, any advice to our young career researchers and people who are interested in studying history.
1: Well, uh, my mentors, I there's a very strong history of science program at Oregon State University where I taught for 34 years. And those people were extremely helpful to me as I proceeded with the book, I they read many versions uh, of my manuscript. It took me ten years to write, so uh, <laughs> there was there was lots of input from from my colleagues uh, here and also other historians of science around the country. I presented aspects of the book in papers. I still remember one meeting at the History of Science Society, uh, and I was talking about lice, and uh, someone in the audience put up his hand and said, well, have you thought about pornography and lice? And believe me, I had not thought about pornography and lice, it just hadn't occurred to me, but When I went looking, I found lots about uh, crab lice and pornography and prostitution. So that took me on that kind of a uh, journey. Hmm. (laughs) It it was strange, but interesting. Uh, For younger scholars, I would say if you come across something that strikes you as very unusual and something that even might make you laugh in this i am quoting robert Danton, the famous princeton historian but something that seems so weird and strange to you then you found a way to enter into another world and another mindset, and that's something you should pursue. And you know, and you know, there are other things about this. Uh, originally, I had thought to keep the book um, just in the sixteenth, seventeenth, and eighteenth centuries, but. Uh, readers, in particular my husband, who's an American historian, suggested that I go later in history. And so I ventured into the 19th and 20th centuries and the 21st century. And I expanded the book to look at rats as well as insect vermin, uh, because uh, contemporary views of vermin usually think about Uh, lice, not lice, excuse me, think about rats and mice. And so that brought me to that also. And so that's one thing I tell younger historians, all historians, if they are starting a project, a broad project like this, I think they need to be aware how different it is from the kind of narrowly focused work that has usually been done in the late 20th century Uh, and the kind of work I've done previously, which focused on uh, Margaret Cavendish, focused on Thomas Hobbes, the political philosopher. My first book was about somebody named Pierre Gassendi, who was a French philosopher uh, slash uh, thinker scientist of the 17th century this book was this the vermin book getting under your skin this cultural and social history of vermin is much broader and the way i was able to do that is the existence of databases now where you can go through many 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 books uh very quickly by hitting particular words and quite frankly i don't know if that's good or bad it enables a very broad study in a shorter amount of time but it means that you're losing some of the context by reading an entire book devoted to a subject i did read some entire books but um in many cases I just went to those hits and were able to look at the immediate um, use of a word or a phrase. So it's a, a different kind of research than at least I've done in the past.
0: And how did you come up with a title? Because it's really (laughs) visceral, getting under our skin.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got a lot of input from friends about what they thought would be a good title. And ultimately, it just bubbled to the top of my brain. Uh, I've wanted to uh, emphasize that this was a book about the body and also the, the home surrounding the body. So I, I really wanted to emphasize that aspect of it. And, of course, you know, lice, fleas, and bedbugs, yes, bedbugs, they were what I originally wrote about. Uh, do uh, bite and suck your skin. Uh, rats, when I turn to it, uh, bite, uh, particularly babies. Uh, and so it seemed a natural kind of title for the book. And I also, you know, it's, uh, I. Started my career as a historian of ideas, but I've also um, studied cultural history, so it expanded into that, and the subtitle is The Cultural and Social History of Vermin. So I wanted to emphasize that it is um, not primarily a book about the medical aspects of vermin and the diseases they cause, but rather that it is a metaphorical treatment of vermin, a historical treatment of how vermin were used to view other people, to view the other. And that's where the title
0: and the book comes from. So let's uh, dive into a couple of those topics that you cover in your book. And can we start by defining the term vermin? What does it actually mean?
1: <laughs> oh, that's a very hard one. It <laughs> is a very, very slippery term. Uh, it probably wasn't used until the later Middle Ages, and it appears in both um, French and in uh, Anglo, Anglo French, 14th, 15th centuries. And, um, you know, originally it were, it referred mostly to worms, to worms that they were a real problem at the time, body worms, intestinal worms, but very, quickly is expanded to include other creatures as well by the 15th or the 16th centuries. And boy, you know, they're really any animal that preys on the human body or the home or hearth, the human body or the human home. And usually it referred to small animals sometimes just insects, sometimes other creatures. For a second, I have a list in my book, if I can find it. Uh, Let's see. Uh, So... It included fox, it included ants, it included spiders, it included rats, it included, oh uh, boy, boy, it included, let's see, otters, buzzards, uh, wasps, caterpillars, snakes, moles. <laughs> wow. It, yeah, it also it included rabbits to begin with, but once they started using rabbits as a food source, that fell off the vermin list. So it's you know it's not something that has a set definition. it changes through time. If that makes any
0: sense. Yes, for sure. and it's really strange that some of those animals like even otters, <laughs> were classified as vermin.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, creatures that we would now find cute are, were not cute. And, but rats were always vermin. And there's this, oh, I guess it's early 17th century, maybe late 16th century, call, a book called The Vermin Killer, which uh, describes all of the methods by which you could kill various kinds of vermin, and they're all listed in there, and various kinds of uh, recipes for killing them, usually involving turpentine and sulfur.
0: So then how did this term migrate into the social milieu?
1: Well, that's a fairly uh, understandable kind of thing Um, during the wars of religion and afterwards it was very common for people on either side, Protestants, Catholics to call each other a kind of vermin of one, uh, rats or lice or that kind of thing and also um, by the time you get To the King James version of the Bible, uh, lice and and worms are being used um, to describe venomous human beings. And um, so when you get descriptions in the religious literature of, say, Roman emperors that persecuted Christians, very often they are being described as people who were being eaten by vermin on the inside and the outside. Uh, Sulla, the Hmm. Roman dictator, was one of them. Although, and this is kind of interesting, uh, early on, by the 16th century or earlier, uh, People who mortified their flesh by an imitation of the sufferings of Christ, also who wore hair shirts that were full of lice and fleas and other parasites, uh, that was a good thing. You know, in that way, vermin could be considered a, a good thing uh, because you were suffering like Christ suffered. Uh, so uh, Thomas More wore. A lice ridden hair shirt and Thomas Beckett supposedly all the way back in the 12th century wore a hair shirt and the story was that as his body cooled the lice left his body because they uh, don't like cold they Mm -hmm. prefer warm kinds of bodies so That starts to happen. Then the English uh, start to associate, uh, especially the Irish with vermin, uh, as they bring the Irish under control. So the Irish are the enemy, uh, likewise the Scots. then they start, oh, by the late 16th century, to associate vermin with the lower classes, with, um, with prisoners, with shopkeepers, with, uh, the poor, with beggars, with members of the lower classes who supposedly were covered with vermin. And this was an indication of how deplorable they were. Uh, in particular, people who, well, they were called able beggars. People who were faking their disabilities and faking uh, the the parasites on their bodies uh, were uh, considered verminous because of that. And then, uh, when the English started to conquer the rest of the world, they expanded the definition of vermin to include Native Americans, to include Africans. Uh, They added the travel stories always had comments about how, uh, how the lice occupied the bodies of Native Americans who ate the lice off their bodies. Likewise, Africans ate lice and how they were all covered with lice. As time went on, how about that, throughout history, but I'm going to be particular in history, by the late 17th century, for a variety of reasons, Cleanliness became increasingly important to the upper classes, was a way of distinguishing themselves from the lower classes and from foreigners. And at that point, it became really, really important not to have bugs on one's body or in one's beds or in one's homes or or rats in one, one's homes. And so that becomes a really important social criterion for the upper classes. And as people in the parentally rising upper classes, middle classes, start to rise up, they start to adopt cleanliness as a very important part of their being. This distinguished themselves from the lower classes. I also argue in the book, this is a sign of modern times, of modernity, when the world becomes modern, when people no longer objected to having having bugs on their bodies. It's a kind of interesting social kind of evolution. In the early 18th century, the British and Americans by that time started to identify bedbugs as a new kind of parasite. Uh, Bedbugs had clearly been around for a long time, but for whatever reason, they are given a new identity in the 18th century, and that's when the first great fear of bedbugs arises. It's also when the first professional exterminators appear in England and then in America. Uh, the first uh, person who did that was somebody named John Southall, who uh, supposedly was taught... Uh, a way to kill bed bugs when he was in Jamaica and he was taught by an ex-slave of African ancestry Uh, and he essentially stole the formula from this guy went back to England and set up business by this time the Royal Society is meeting regularly They're very interested in bugs and in small animals. South Hole tries to present his findings as scientific, writes a pamphlet, which is essentially an advertisement for his business, his his pest-killing business, but he also has a lot of scientific stuff in there. He dedicates it to Sir Hans Sloan, the president of the Royal Society, and he presents it to the Royal Society. He is he goes and presents his findings. So science and business and cleanliness all come together, modernity, uh in the 18th century in part because of this new consciousness about bugs about bugs and then rats this new kind of consciousness about these creatures
0: was this term also used uh, against the actual ill people so people with a disease rather than pretending to have a disease
1: well, it's a good question. People didn't know that these animals caused disease mm. until the 19th century. Uh, not until late in the 19th century, when, in, especially in the 1890s, uh, typhus. Is, uh, people realize that lice are the uh, disease per, uh, vector for typhus, uh, very sh- in the 1890s also that rats and fleas are disease vectors for bubonic plague. Um, and as people become more conscious of germ theory, they understand the uh, medical implications, and that's really when they start to uh, to blame people for being dirty and for causing disease. Uh, boy, there's um, <laughs> there's something called uh, the Polish plika That's a kind of dreadlock. Where the dreads are infested with lice, and people start to, and they associate that with Poles and Turks and Jews, and start to argue that they are the carriers of typhus. Uh, the Nazis in the 20th century pick this up particularly about Jews and also the Roma and you and use this in their propaganda. So there are pictures of Jews with long beards with, uh, with uh, motto sayings, you know, kill the lice and the lice bearers, essentially that's a misquote, but that's what they mean by this propaganda. Uh, people begin become very conscious of this. It also has a racial element. so in the uh, well, of course against Jews, but in the 20th century uh, the Hearst papers in the United States start arguing that disease is brought back from World War I, particularly by Negro soldiers who bring, cooties with them cooties mm-hmm. mean fleas lice bed bugs cooties so uh yeah you really you have to wait until the 20th century for a lot of this these associations uh, africans also uh are it, it's interesting a uh, Claude uh, Nicole. Am I getting his right name? Let me get you the right name. Who won? uh, Won a? uh, Oh, my mind is going here. He he won a not a Pulitzer Prize. He won what's the big scientific prize? Nobel noble, that's it, uh, for his realization that lice were in the clothes of patients. He was in Morocco, and he understood, uh, oh, I guess this is probably about 1910, that if you take off the clothes and clean them of people coming in with typhus, uh they people will no longer be infected. Will they will no longer infect other people with the disease. And when he wins the Nobel Prize in I think it's in twenty seven, nineteen twenty seven, he's a good guy, but in his speech, he talks about how savages and barbarians are the ones who have to be taught about cleanliness and how to get rid of uh, these kinds of, of parasites on their bodies. And so even though he was very sympathetic to native populations, he still thought of them as barbarians, as savages. And that's really true through the 20th century for a lot of people, a lot of people. Um, Certainly, uh, if you get into... To, the, to rats and the way people think about rats. Rats are thought about to particularly infest uh, black populations. Uh, two American scientists in the 50s and 60s studied rats. Uh, one of them, John Calhoun, uh, studied rats, put them in very small cages and observed their behaviors and thought they became pathological in these small spaces, became crazed, became cannibalistic, the strong killed the weak. He called this a behavioral sink. And then he applied that term to people living in slums, and by which he meant the African-American populations. And there was another guy called Richter who also studied uh, the behavior of rats and was a eugenicist because he thought that you had to limit populations. And he too was essentially thinking about the poor and uh, global populations that were overpopulating the world. So there are um, real, uh, real life implications to these studies, obviously, of particularly of rats, but also of other parasites and insects.
0: It is fascinating how it spans both Europe and North America.
1: Well, probably my favorite thing about the book, uh, this was pretty early on when I was working on rats. Uh, There is a province in Canada, Alberta, which... uh, is supposedly rat free Hmm. and uh, in the 50s they started to put the government started to put up put up posters which said keep alberta rat free and the lettering they used was the same Essentially used in anti-communist lettering. So it's playing on a political kind of message. Alberta had a very uh, conservative government at the time. Keep those communists out of Alberta. Alberta, Keep those rats out of Alberta. Uh, In America, Nixon uses the same kind of language. As well, uh, in our own time, Trump uh, often uses the language, the metaphors taken from this, from vermin language to describe immigrants. So stop the infestation, the swarming immigrants on our borders. The, this rhetoric is very rich and goes back centuries in its
0: implications what is our contemporary understanding then and also use of term uh, vermin
1: <laughs> well I think increasingly it refers to to rats more than insect vermin but um, anybody there there are lots of people who Call their enemies vermin, uh, or take offense when they are uh, called a kind of vermin. There was there's a New York uh, columnist, Brett Stevens, who got very very upset when he was called a bedbug in a publication, <laughs> and, mm. and just. Oh, well, he got it. He was incensed by that. Uh, in other places, um, different kinds of vermin um, no longer have the impact except for, well, lice. So if your children bring home lice from school, head lice, uh, that's... Um, that's very bad, and people blame the parents of children who supposedly have had lice or who have had lice for uh, infecting their children. There was oh, a many, many page uh thing on the internet from the New York Times where people were arguing that children who had lice should be prevented from going to school Hmm. and that sort of rings a bell with the pandemic doesn't it and um, they just shouldn't be allowed scientists come on one scientist comes on to this to say, you know, head lice are not really that terrible. They they don't carry disease, or typhus can be. is no longer a, a disease of at least Western civilization. Uh, people shouldn't get that upset by it, but um, people get really upset, and they consider those who have head lice to be very, very dirty. Body lice have been pretty much eliminated from developed societies. And crab lice, oh, the strange things I found out in this book, but crab lice are going extinct among people who use Brazilian wa- waxes. So, also yeah. <laughs> developed culture, companies, countries, because uh, pubic hair is being uh, done away with. Uh, kind of strange things, but there we
0: have it. Yeah, that is quite interesting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very strange and probably not true, but strange. Bed bugs are uh, are evolving. All of these creatures Ooh. are becoming resistant to um, to what had been used to kill them uh, in the 20th century. Of course, DDT was outlawed in developed countries, and then uh, insecticides using pyrethrum uh, also are increasingly being outlawed, or uh, insects are becoming uh, resistant to them. Bedbugs are evolving into a whole new species, apparently, because of their resistance to, um, to traditional uh, bedbug killers, which is kind of interesting, evolution at work.
0: So if we reflect a little bit uh, on a wider society, Uh, What was the significance of our use of term vermin throughout history, and how has it shaped societal, economical, and also political forces?
1: That's a very big question, and the whole book is about that. Mm. Uh, How did it shape? Well, it gave people a way to think about others, and to justify the persecution and even extermination of the other. And by the other, I mean anybody who did not fit into the established norms of society at that particular time. And as a metaphor, vermin could be expanded for use in any social, cultural, or political context. And so it, 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 you know, I guess the moral of the book is that words have power, and these particular words still have a lot of power. That's why for some people, when I tell them what my book is about and the title of my book, they go, ugh, because (laughs) it's so disgusting and revolting to think about vermin. Other people think how fascinating and they're interested in knowing how creatures which you know don't they they don't come inscribed with meaning meaning is imputed to them people, these people people who find it fascinating want to know how that happens and want to, want to know what it means when these words are used either historically or currently in language, they have significance. And I guess as a historian of ideas, that's something I want people to understand. Words are not neutral and these words, verminous words, certainly are not neutral. So when you look at a cartoon and why there is a British cartoon, and I'm going not going to name the cartoonist, but essentially it's about um, terrorists who are pictured as fleas and bedbugs and lice and rats coming invading our countries. Um, you no, know, or even cartoons that are meant to be funny. So there are a lot of cartoons about fleas, where fleas, you know, in are coming to occupy an an apartment, and uh, they say, "Oh, what a wonderful place to live!" <laughs> That's there's a more humor, humorous tagline. That's essentially what they're saying. There's a New Yorker cartoon where two people are pictured in 17th century costume, and one says to the other, this would be a golden age except for the lice. So, you know, <laughs> they, but you know, they could be. It could be funny, but it could also be pretty tragic uh, with all of these. And you know, now I guess microbes have taken the place of some, of these verminous animals in the minds of people. But I've yet to see the uh, coronavirus called vermin, but it may come. <laughs>
0: So beside the Brazilian wax finding, what other discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Getting Under Our Skin, surprised you the most?
1: Well, one of the things that I I really loved finding out and probably I, might, I should have known about was that in the later Middle Ages, they uh, had trials for rats. Rats were tried in, in courts, ecclesiastical Ooh. courts, and <laughs> when they were convicted, they were told to leave the vicinity. I don't think that worked, but I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> what else? Um, Changes in architecture and bedding in response to uh, bedbugs and and rats as people tried to keep them from their homes. I think also I would boy. This is probably stretching things, but I decided that modern times began in 1668 when the diarist Samuel Pepys wrote a very famous diary about Restoration England, uh, started to object to having lice on his body and in his wigs, and I thought, aha, here we go, this is people before had figured, you know, this is just a way of living. It's the way we live. We're inhabited by these creatures. And now that was no longer acceptable. And talk about a signifier of changing attitudes. Here's one, and a kind of the beginning of a kind of modern attitude. Uh, towards, towards, towards vermin. So those are mm. things I discovered. Uh, what else? Uh, I had never thought about rats and the role that rats played in literature. Uh, but they're all over literature um, in the. In earlier times, but up until up until now, uh, children's literature is full of rats. And so, in Harry Potter, when one of the uh, people, uh, what a, well, somebody who had been a rat and the uh, pet of Ron Weasley is revealed to be actually a human being in rat form. I went, aha, I know where that comes from. <laughs> so so it, it, it opens up a universe of meaning that I perhaps wasn't aware of before. And I hope people will become aware of when they read the book.
0: And what are your favorite and most feared creatures that can be regarded as vermin? And I hope that otters make it to your list.
1: (laughs) No, I think otters are cute. Uh, (laughs) These are uh, my most feared creatures. Well, I didn't include them in the book because I really hate them. Cockroaches. Uh, Mm. I don't know if they can literally be considered vermin because they usually are not on the body, but they certainly are in the home. And um, I went to school in the Bronx in New York and saw them and uh, saw them in Los Angeles when I was in graduate school. I really don't like roaches and I certainly don't like rats. There was a rat in my Garbage several years ago, and that was traumatizing And <laughs> <Isn't> that, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, happily, my children never had lice, so I'm not that scared of them. Roaches and rats who will, as we all know, inherit the earth after we all die of climate change. And the coronavirus, uh, those are the creatures I fear most and don't want to have anything to do with. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> what about you? Well,
0: well, otters are probably the favorite ones. <laughs> but, uh, I, I really share your sentiment towards cockroaches, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: Well, I think that my next project is going to be Worms, which I started working on originally when I was thinking about this book. begin with years ago and it sort of got shuttled to one side but i think worms have lots of meaning both metaphorical and scientific and so that's where i'm going with the next project um yeah worms (laughs) but that 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 sounds
0: really exciting yeah
1: (laughs) You know, intestinal worms, uh, giant worms eating up uh, the seas uh, and continents. Well, of course, we've done in the guinea worm. I'm glad about that. But that's going to be my next project, I think.
0: And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book?
1: Okay, well, um, I would go to Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, there's going to be a, a blog which I have to send into them today about it, but it's also described there. They can go to my Facebook page, which is called Vermin in History. I also have a web page called vermin in history uh there is a piece in the washington post um blog called it's called uh, it's the blog is made in history i think their their general term for it uh and they can order it on amazon it's going to be out Today, in fact, is the official publication date for the book. So, Excellent. Everywhere. And um, if they want to email me, that's fine too. sarasolee at oregonstate.edu.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this illuminating, itchy, scratchy discussion.